Baker and Senator Brandis. Okay, okay, you can only do one question because we're going to be going to NPR in a few minutes. All right, got to hurry up, Keith, and and we'll carry you over into the into after after NPR. So you got to hold tight as well after you ask the question. Okay, so very quickly. Sure. I uh, just wanted to say good morning. Glad to hear you're still involved in the reform business. I myself have known Mr. Brandis for quite some time, and uh, they are definitely some of the best legislators we've had for what this issue is about. But I always refer back to one thing in the years of this reform that we talked about, and that Florida does already have a law that's published in their own books that gives out a complete plan on what to do with our prison system, but we haven't been able to follow it. Because of politics. Politics have stopped prison reform, criminal justice reform in the state of Florida. So that statute, if you want to read it in between breaks or anything, is 944.012. This law did a breakdown of every problem that we have in the state of Florida, our prison system. But we're not following. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Barbara Klein. President Biden has wrapped up a three-state Western tour, but he's staying on the campaign trail to help Democrats in November's midterm elections. NPR's Mara Eliasson reports. Over the weekend, Biden campaigned in Oregon, a usually reliable blue state, but there's a three-way race for governor in Oregon, where the third-party candidate, a Democrat-turned-independent, could siphon votes away from the Democratic candidate, allowing the Republican candidate to win. Later this week, Biden will travel to Pennsylvania to hold a fundraiser for Democratic Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. He's running against Trump-endorsed TV doctor Mehmet Oz. Along with Nevada and Georgia, Pennsylvania is considered one of the top three Senate races this year. If no other seats change hands, whichever party wins two of the three will control the Senate majority in January. Mara Eliasson, NPR News. In California, police say they've arrested a suspected serial killer. The suspect's reign of terror in our community has come to an end. That's San Joaquin County's incoming district attorney, Ron Freitas, announcing Stockton police captured a 43-year-old in connection with the murders of six men in a string of shootings between April and September. Police say they believe they stopped another killing when they captured the suspect yesterday. A Texas state senator is calling on the state's police director to step down following the release of an analysis by the New York Times that finds discrepancies between what video of the Robb Elementary School shooting shows and the director's public statements. Officials in Iran say four prisoners are dead, more than 60 are injured, after a fire broke out at a prison complex in Tehran yesterday. It's now been extinguished. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports officials are blaming the fire on rioting prisoners. Tehran prosecutor Ali Salahi was quoted as saying calm had been restored at the prison. He also said the unrest had no connection to the protests which have gripped the country for the past four weeks. Avian Prison is known to house political prisoners and anti-government activists. Official comments appeared to convey that those detained during the recent protests were not being held in the parts of the prison complex where the fire started. The blaze occurred as Iranian security forces struggled to quell the demonstrations that broke out after the death of a young woman in police custody. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. At least one American is believed to be among the inmates at the prison. Siamak Namazi has been detained in Iran since 2015 for allegedly collaborating with a foreign government. The State Department calls his detention illegal. This is NPR News. Pakistan's foreign minister says he's summoned the U.S. ambassador after President Biden suggested Pakistan's nuclear program isn't safe. In a speech last week, Biden called Pakistan, quote, maybe one of the most dangerous nations in the world, saying it has nuclear weapons without any cohesion. Pakistan says its nuclear assets meet all international standards. Uganda's president has declared a 21-day lockdown, including a curfew, to stem the spread of an ongoing Ebola outbreak in two districts. The measures announced this weekend have taken immediate effect, as Ishma Fandikwa reports. President Yoweri Museveni walked back on an earlier pledge not to impose any restrictive measures following the outbreak last month. 
The raft of measures includes a ban on public and private transport in Mubende district, where the first case was reported, and Kasanda district. Places of worship and entertainment have been ordered to close, but schools and mines remain open. The communicable disease has so far claimed 19 lives out of the 58 confirmed cases. For NPR News, I am Ishma Fundikwa in Harare. Russia has opened a criminal investigation into yesterday's attack at a military training ground near the border with Ukraine. At least 11 people were killed, 15 wounded, during a firearms training session for newly mobilized Russian forces. The foreign ministry calls it a terrorist attack. I'm Barbara Klein, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Scribner, publisher of Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr, author of All the Light We Cannot See. Cloud Cuckoo Land is about the power of books to unite us. Available in paperback in bookstores and online. On Thursday, October 27th, WMNF celebrates Halloween with two great bands. WMNF's Halloween Ball 2022 features the music of Tampa's Lane Liar. And making his Bay Area appearance from Louisville, Kentucky, Scary Black. Plus, Azzy Bats and Vamp Daddy of Obscura Undead will be DJing this great night of gothic music. The WMNF Halloween Bowl again takes place Thursday, October 27th, 9 p.m. at New World Music Hall, 810 East Skagway Avenue in Tampa. Tickets are $18 in advance, $20 at the door. Go to WMNF.org for more info. Vaya, this is Speedy Gonzalez from Latin Jazz and Salsa. Afro-Cuban funk phenom Simon Funk makes his highly anticipated return to Tampa. For a one-night-only performance in Ybor City at the Cuban Club on October 14th. All proceeds benefit WMNF 88.5 FM, as well as the Gasparilla Music Foundation and its Recycle Tunes Instrument Program. For more info and tickets, go to WMNF.org. We need you. This is Miss Julie. Our week-long fall membership drive is from 9 a.m. Thursday, October 6th through 9 a.m. on Thursday, October 13th. We are seeking volunteers to help take pledge calls, tally people to track funds coming in, and food donors to help feed those hungry and grateful volunteers. Restaurants, chefs, or caterers can find out more about donating drinks, snacks, or individually packaged meals, or how to volunteer by calling me at 813-238-8001 or email Miss Julie, that's M-I-S-S-J-U-L-I-E, at WMNF.org. Thanks. And we're back here on the Sunday Forum. Uh, man, this is awesome. This is a great conversation with Senator Jeff Brandis here in studio with us. Um, I am excited because we're talking about the issue of prison reform. Um, you know, and, you know, feel like some music but we're going to answer these calls and as we answer these calls we're going to play some music because I'm telling you right now this gets tense the air just kind of you can take a knife and just cut it you know so um, uh, let's go to the phone call that we just had just before the break Okay. and then we're going to listen to we're going to talk to the folks and then we're going to listen to a little bit of music then we're going to go back into this discussion some more okay Take a deeper dive, the deeper dive. All right, next, uh, the caller that we had before, let's go back to you. Yeah, caller that was just on, you're back on the Sunday Forum. Uh, good morning. <clears throat> Keith Harris was my name. I'm sorry I didn't introduce myself. Oh, it's okay. Hello, Keith. <laughs> Thank you for taking the call. I've been an advocate with uh, criminal justice reform for the past six years and have watched the uh, <clears throat> minimal amount of things that did not get done 
And it's truly not the legislator's fault. A lot of this went straight up to the governor. There were over 100 bills filed last year attempting to create sentencing reform. Uh, maybe 8% of that was dealing with the actual prisons. But I think when we talk and have these discussions where we're at today, we're in the year 2022, and uh, we're still having a problem in grappling with how to properly treat people. You look at the idleness that's going on that Senator Brandis talked about. It results in these cost factors that are public is completely unaware of. And a lot of it deals with the medical negligence that goes on in the prisons today. And there is tremendous amount going on. It can't be hidden. It's public record. You can read the lawsuits that are filed probably once a month that cost the state 2 and $3 million to settle. But the point being is I think we're at a point today in this society where we have to start looking at what does it take to get prison reform integrated into criminal justice reform because it's separated so far away that the abuses are absolutely intolerable. Uh, Senator Brandis has seen this with his own eyes. So I think we need to concentrate on reinventing our prisons, regenerating them, not trying to fix them. I truly don't think we're at a point we can fix them. It's too big. It's too big of a problem. The legislator, like I said earlier, has already published a law about what the problems are, and we can't fix them. So I think our visions need to change. I think our discussions need to change. And I think we need to start heading out on routes that say, hey, we just can't incarcerate people and think that we can fix their problems. We can't. We have to reinvent it. So thank you for this forum. Thank you for allowing me to speak. And I hope one day that the legislators does have the power to get past our governor and get these changes done. I know that's right. I know that's right. Yeah, thank you very much. We appreciate your call and calls like yours because uh, you you are clearly very well versed on these on these issues, and uh, we we need this statement. We need this statement, right? Um, because you are a citizen, and it's good to know that citizens are aware of these these types of things. And the fact that that it's not that they're unaware at the top levels, just they just aren't doing anything, right? Can we say that, Senator? That what? They were just not aware. And I, I'm sorry. No, I'm I think, sorry. I think, I'm sorry. I, they're not aware. They're just not doing anything. Well, I think most people aren't aware of what goes on in the prison system, right? You know, it's like they, they just want people to go away. And they assume, oh, they're with the state now. They're going to be, they're, they're getting fixed. They're in the Department of Corrections. And, and that's, again, why I would argue they're not getting fixed. They're just being warehoused. They're largely not going to get any training, no skills, no education, uh, you know, basic health care. But, they're, they're they're not going to be doing anything most of the days. I mean, most time after you know after they eat their meals, there is no other activity going on for that day. Uh, you can only mow the grass so many times at a facility with fifteen hundred inmates. You, there's only so much that they are, they're they're allowed to do, um, and it's gotten so bad, right, with the corrections officer shortage that they've actually shot down all the a lot of the work crews. You know, there used to be wow. people picking up trash on the side of the road. There used to be work crews going out and doing stuff. They've, they've largely eliminated those around the state in order to consolidate the corrections officers. So now, instead of people going out and learning skills, even if it's minimal skills that. working, they've now all been pulled in. This happened about two years ago, where they've pulled in all the corrections officers because they needed literally all hands on deck just to maintain minimal staffing. Again, this is why we have the National Guard coming in, because even with that reaction, they can't maintain minimal staffing. That is Okay, so now that... That goes back to, eh, they just sitting National Guardian, right? That, that's that's how I see it. Eh, Listen, this is this is a this is Guardian. a Department of Correction that's basically held together with spit and chewing gum at this juncture, Jesus. right? Man. We're doing we're running at minimal staffing. We got huge turnover. We got no nothing going on in the prison mm-hmm. system itself as far as activities going on. No education is at a minimum. Uh, healthcare is basic. So we've got all of these different things going on here, and and, and you know our. We're not getting the type of outcomes that we want, and it's not a surprise, right? It's not a surprise that this that, that we're you know that the prison system isn't isn't producing the kind of outcomes that we want because we aren't making the investment to get right. the outcomes that we want. I mean, and, and guards cost money too, so I mean, it's not yeah. just a resource; it's just a human rights issue. Because I'm thinking of a of a of a case about five years ago where a 62 year old inmate was was uh, injured by the, the guards. And they didn't believe him. 
he was taken to the hospital inside the prison and then said that his neck was broken and the guard, and the guard said, you're just BSing. There's nothing there. Yeah, you, and they didn't want to believe him, didn't want to give him any help. So he's not even seen as human. And you know, well, this is what happens when you're understaffed, right? When you're understaffed and under-resourced and the corrections officers are, are uncomfortable and, and the tensions go up and that this is how you get inmate on officer violence. It's also how you get officer on inmate violence, right? And we have numerous cases of officer on inmate violence. I mean, go back and look at 2012. This case that really got me engaged in the criminal justice system and starting on this whole process because, you know, I'm not an attorney by trade. Uh, I, I, you know, and I had no background in criminal justice was Daryl Rainey. I don't know if you remember that name, but Daryl Rainey was in uh, in the South Florida uh, prison and uh, was schizophrenic. Again, Florida's largest mental health care provider in the state is the prison system. Uh, had had uh, had acted out in his cell. The corrections officers took him out of his cell, put him in the shower, turned the tower to 180 degrees, and left him there right. for two hours. And despite his screams and begs to get out, uh, he died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Five years later, no one was prosecuted. Case was closed. Everybody kind of walked away. But that I will tell you that, that stories I remember. Right. This here's a story of of abuse that occurred. There was another story in Lowell Women's Prison a few years back where we had abuse that occurred. Now listen, this is. I have to believe much of this abuse is because of the young, unprofessional, you know, a young staff, uh, under resourced staff. Lack of training and, frankly, idleness and and working conditions. Well, well, let me let me let me just say. Okay, so now let me just add another nuance to that. It's not just that. That's foul. That when, when you when you leave somebody when you do something like that to somebody, that's cruel, right? And that 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 means that means not just that. Like it's not just that they're young or inexperienced. That is that's sick. Yeah, that 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 speaks to a mental issue um, of of somebody who would do something like that to another person, human being, whether prisoner or not, right? And so, this not just psychological stuff we need to be doing with the inmates. No, oh, absolutely, psychological stuff we need to be absolutely doing with these in order to vet them before they even set foot. But it's vetting them. The it's also making sure that your supervisors have enough experience. Yeah. Right, because listen, yeah. you want to be the fastest way to get to be a sergeant or a captain in the in in the state is to be a corrections officer because you can be captain in five years, right? I mean, wow. you know, you can be captain in the in the corrections officers. I mean, in in the police department, it would take you fifteen to twenty years to get there to be a captain. In the prison system, you can get there in four or five years uh, because there's there because other people fall away. They you know there, there's tons of opportunity for promotion because. People are leaving. Sixty percent of your staff is going to leave within two years. Damn. Right. So this constant turn, constant turnover. Let, let's let's get these phone calls. Sure. Thank you, Senator. Okay, let, let's um, get these phone calls because we got them now, boy. Well, we lit it up now. Caller, oh, you're you're on the Sunday Forum. Yes. Good morning, Senator Brandis. Good, um, good morning to you. How are you going to say good morning to Senator Brandis and not say good morning to me? I'm sorry. I just tuned in, so I don't know your name, so I apologize. <laughs> and you saw you don't know it? Dang! <laughs> this is the host, Walter L. Smith II. My goodness. How are you? Good Good morning, Mr. Smith II. <laughs> How are you today? I'm well. I'm well. I'm well. Good. Good. Um, I would like to address um, Senator Brandis because he's been a great proponent for uh, PRR reform. And I'd like to ask him um, if there's anything in the works at this time that he's doing on PRR. Yeah, so let me explain what PRR is. Many states have a three strikes law, right? Where you get three felonies and then you the third felony, you serve life in prison. Right. Uh, and Florida has a two strike law, which means if you get uh, if you get arrested and then within three years of that arrest or sorry that incarceration. Uh, you commit one of the other designated crimes, the mandatory minimum for that sentence could be life in prison. And wow. So we have cases of, you know, somebody who, who uh, got arrested when they were 18, 19 years old. Then, then they were released from prison or released from jail. They went out and committed an armed robbery. And instead of taking the deal, they went to trial. And at trial, the judge had no choice but to give them life in prison. Mm. 
I, I work with one of my favorite people in the in the process that I've worked with is a mom who his son is um, incarcerated. He got a life life uh, for an armed robbery where nobody was hurt, nobody was injured, uh, but PRR, and she moves every time. Her son moves prisons. She moves to be in that community with, with him. Oh, wow. And I was, you know, and, and, you know, for so many people involved in the criminal justice and prison reform movement, there is such a passion, but such just demoralization every year because they don't see the type of, they, they don't seeing these, these, the system change at all. Right, year after year, they go back up to Tallahassee. They make their pleas, they make their cries, and they come back and say, "What hope do I have?" And I said, "Listen, Miss, Miss her name is Miss Henson. I said, Miss Henson, I will never bet against the mother's love. I'll never get bet against her passion for her son to reform the system because PRR doesn't work." Right, these kind of slogans, 10, 20 life, uh, you know, uh, uh, three strikes you're out. Right. They're, I mean, they're great political slogans. Don't get me wrong. I mean, politicians love them because they're easy and people like them. They're really terrible policy. <laughs> because what it does is it takes the humanity out of the situation. It takes, the, it takes us looking, it stops us from looking at the individual person and the individual act. And we glump, we, we kind of just bump it up all together lump it all together and say, oh, well, you did these three things or you did these two things, therefore, the sentence is life. It takes and humanity out of the judgment. Right, right, right. Well, and it takes the judge out of it too. Right. Because right. the judge has no choice. This is set by some politician in Tallahassee 20 years ago and the legislature stopped dealing with it and just said, well, we can't go back on that. Well, yeah, you can. You can actually fix it and you can come out with better outcomes. Well, see, here we go again. That callousness. It's not, it, I, I would argue it's not as much callousness as it is apathy. It's just lack of caring. It's just they don't care, right? Because nobody has said, here's, here's the outcomes that we want. And do our policies, do, our, do the laws of the state get us the outcomes that we want? Nobody's asking. And nobody really has a vision for what they want the correction system to look like. Mm-hmm. Nobody, want, nobody has a vision for what they want the, the criminal justice system to look like. And right now, the sheriffs, and unlike many other states, the Florida Sheriff's Association is like, well, the suit is, is like the strongest organization, one of the strongest lobbying organizations in Tallahassee. And they largely push on criminal justice issues, mm-hmm. right? And so they issued a report coming back a couple of years ago when we were pushing back against 85%. So we said, look, well, you know, and instead of just having 85% for everybody, let's have 85%, 65% for nonviolent, 85 for violent, for, for violent offenders. Mm-hmm. Well, they came out and there was a report and they said, well, no, you will show you 85% works. Except for if you read the report and the conclusions, it says, well, the data is all up in the air. We, we actually don't know that it works, right? And this is the sheriff's own, own report comes out and says this, right? And so, listen, a vast majority of states have different policies. Florida's PRR policy is one of the worst in the country. It doesn't get you the outcomes that you want. It's a two-strike law. But unfortunately, I can tell you, I, you know, I don't know that anything's going to happen this year. I, I highly doubt it. We have to understand. You have, we have we have a governor who's likely to be running for president of the United States, trying to win the Republican nomination. Un- that that likely means that there will be very little done on the criminal justice prison reform side. Right, right. Let's bring in um, Vanessa. Okay, Vanessa, you're on the Sunday Forum. Hello. Hey, how are you? Good, Good morning, man. Vanessa. How are you? Morning, Mr. Walter. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Listen, uh, Vanessa is one who works very closely with the senator uh, on these issues, and uh, we want to welcome you to the show. Vanessa, we're going to take a couple of calls, and, and we want to make sure that, that you're in on the uh, on the discussions, okay? Okay. All right. Actually, before we take that call, there's an email for him. Can I read it? Oh, yeah, please. Okay. By all means. By all means. Okay. Miko. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, sorry, I tuned in late this morning, so I'm not sure who your guest is, although I understand there are state representatives. Everything he said sounds good, and it's been shown to work in other multiple multiple states and countries. We've been saying this for almost 30 years now. Ultimately, the issue is a culture one and gets down to resource allocation. The the voters, especially in the South, don't support prison reform. We are set in the 1980s Reagan tough on crime mentality. Mm -hmm. It takes a strong leader willing, sorry, okay, willing to go against the vote and show them they are wrong and we need these reforms. 
Trump, for example, executed several people in the final months of his administration. Why? Maybe because he could, but most likely he wanted to set the image of I'm tough on crime. He gave the people what they thought they wanted. So my question is, pragmatically speaking, how do we actually institute reform? Senator Rob. Go ahead. Gotcha. Well, Rob, thanks for your for your question. I think they're, they're, it's, it's got to start at the grassroots level. Mm-hmm. It's got to start with people educating. And frankly, it's got to start with legislators taking tours of prisons. Mm-hmm. They have to see the system itself, you know, and they have to get engaged. And, and I don't care whether it's going to a juvenile facility, their local jail, or going to a dozen prisons like I've done, right? You have to see for yourself. I mean, I've walked into prisons and I've seen, I've walked into the kitchens and I've seen cockroaches scurry. And I remember walking out of there, calling the health department saying, you need to come here right now and, and you need to do an inspection because we're not going to have cockroaches in the kitchens of our, in, the, in the prison system in Florida, right? I mean, that kind of stuff because, because they need to see how few educators are in there. They need to see and talk to the inmates because we always pull, talk, we pull inmates aside. We talk to them. How'd you get here? What's your story? You know, uh, what's your experience like? And... You know, they, a lot of times they say, well, j- listen, there's nothing to do here. There's nothing to do all day, all every day, right? There's no education. There's no sports. There's no, there's no activities. There's no, there's no nothing, right? And so, the, you know, you, once you get that perspective, you say, all right, well, we're clearly, we're not getting the outcomes that we want. Right. So I always say, I always say to, to that email, listen, it takes two things to be successful in the Florida legislature in a past policy. You need a vision and you need a champion, Right. So what, what we have to do is clearly define our vision. And I think that's where community conversations like this take place. And then we have to find and, and build our champions. Like, there's nobody who right. can, runs for office right. to go on prison reform. Let's just admit, like, they're right. going to they're, they're work on property insurance, housing, taxes, whatever. They're not running for, pro, for, for prison reform. At all. So we have to make them. We have to build these champions out of, uh, and when they come into the legislature, uh, and we have to turn them into champions for criminal justice and prison reform. So they have to be forged in the fire. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> and just to comment, um, you said, you know, a lot of this starts at the grassroots. And I want to say there are examples of, uh, like, reform, especially up in Chicago, from uh, police torture and wrongful convinci- conviction survivors. So uh, I believe his name is Claiborne Smith, um, was uh, wrongfully convicted and arrested and brutalized into... Uh, confessing for a crime he did not commit, served time for, and was able to get out. And he's now a part of the uh, ECPS, which is empowering community and safety, and that's uh, allowing him to be a leading force in prison reform from the from somebody who's actually experienced it, and you know they're calling for um, community control of the police and of correctional systems, and I think that's like. Uh, especially important to have this perspective because you talk about working conditions. Oh, the working conditions are terrible. The living conditions are terrible in prisons. And what really is needed for this like movement is for people who have directly experienced and who have been harmed to be the leaders of this movement to suggest the changes rather than the changes coming from the top down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's got to be both. So one of my one of my favorite uh, people that I've met in this and while I've been in the legislature is a guy named Sean Hopwood. Now Sean is a professor at Georgetown. Uh, he's a, a, a professor of law at, at Georgetown University, and he. Uh, but before he was a professor of law, he he served uh, ten years in a federal prison for bank robbing. And he, while he was in prison, he worked in the law library, and he realized he had a pension for the law, and started writing briefs. Um, and ended up writing two briefs on a prison typewriter that were heard by the United States Supreme Court. Wow. And uh, then he, he wrote a book, but I mean, somebody who is passionate about criminal justice and prison reform. Um, so it's, it takes people like that, that have gone through the system, have lived it, have come out the other end, have reformed their lives, have gone on to now be educa- be educators and trying to kind of teach a next generation of, hey, listen, here's how we need to think about the prison system. Right. That, that It's those types of voices that are so important uh, nationally uh, to, to speak on these types of issues. 
let's let's go to the calls. Let's go to the calls, guys. Okay. More calls. Caller, you're on the Sunday forum. Hello. Uh, hey, hello. Yes. Good morning. Hi. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How about y'all? All right. All right. Cool. Um, yeah, I guess I just had a question ish for uh, the senator. Um, you know, there was a lot of talk earlier about um, the mandatory minimum. Um, and I think he's like referred to it as putting a sword over uh, people's heads, um, which, you know, I completely agree with. Um, but, you know, there does come a problem in that it kind of forces a lot of people to take those plea deals. Um, you know, overwhelmingly in the prison system, we see a lot of black folks and we see a lot of young folks. Um, and, you know, as time goes on, we're also seeing a lot of uh, innocent people finding themselves in the prison system. Um, <clears throat> um, and I guess this vision of reform, is there anything being done to actually challenge the uh, mandatory minimums that are happening? Because, you know, when it comes down to it, if, like, it comes between me taking, like, 10 years on a, I don't know, drug charge or something silly, or uh, <clears throat> getting a plea deal, uh, or, you know, taking 10 years for something I didn't do, uh, or taking a plea deal that'll make it, like, five, um, I'm going to take the plea deal because that's less time. That's just, like, how people work. Um, and, you know, I think that that's a pretty big problem that isn't being talked about enough, Um even you, there wasn't really a solution proposed when you brought it up. Um, is there something in the works, or how is that fitting in, like, your goal of reform? Because yeah. I think reform starts, you know, even before, like, folks find themselves in the prison. Absolutely. So I'm somebody who doesn't support mandatory minimums. I, I think that you have guidelines, you have judges, and you have judges that have, you know, that, that should use their discretion uh, in order to appropriately sentence a person based on the individual crime which they're facing. Uh, and so I know that that's a departure from some of my colleagues, uh, but the, you know, I'm trying to figure out what is the art of the possible here in the, in the legislature. And so the way that we addressed it was to say, listen, there at least should be some downward departures from mandatory minimums, right? At least allow judges some discretion to say there, these series of circumstances allow for me to depart from the mandatory sentence, uh, that was the recommended by the legislature and to, to allow for a lesser sentence if, if we believe that's appropriate. What are some of those cases that may be like that? Well, listen, we've gotten, you know, back before we did some of the drug reform laws, we had a grandmother who decided she was going to take her oxy pills and sell them to a, and, and part of, part of one of the people she sold them to was an undercover police officer. Uh, she, th those, because of the amount of pills, it was one, it was one of her vials um, that got her a trafficking charge, which carries 20 years, mandatory minimum, which she got, right? Now, again, should she have sold her drug? Nope. Is anything about that story good? No. Should she have gotten 20 years? I don't think there's a person alive that says, well, this, the, the proper sentence for you, grandma, is 20 years. In the, and the proper use of the state's resources is you spending 20 years in the prison system, right? In a vast majority of other states, she wouldn't have got prison. She would have, she would, they, you know, they would have put her on supervised release. They would put her on parole, uh, on probation. Uh, maybe she does a year in county, but a vast majority of other states, she would not have gotten prison. In Florida, she has 20 years in prison. And so these types of things were, where a judge, again, in that circumstance, had no choice but to give this woman 20 years in prison uh, would have been able to downward depart and say, and, you know, state it on the record and, and do that. So I think to, to answer your question, um, I don't think the state's going to roll back any of the mandatory minimums anytime soon. I think it's, it's really a long-term prison reform uh, movement that's going to take to roll back some of those. But I think what is possible is allowing judges to have more de downward departure discretion. I don't know that it's possible um, given the current administration. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, um, but ooh, can I be heard? Yeah, you, we got you. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, it's really just like, I don't know, is there any steps being made towards doing that? Even like some draft? Um, yeah, you, you can go back and look at some of the draft legislation that we've had or some of the filed legislation that we've had that allows for downward departures um, and just ending mandatory minimums on certain crimes. Uh, we've, you know, the legislature has changed uh, the, the, the mandatory minimums on certain crimes, uh, specifically aggravated assault, 
Uh, but th- there are other uh, there are other crimes that definitely need to be to be addressed. But this is just one of the many issues that we see in the Florida prison system and in the correction system that is so uh, egregious and that has built up over time. I mean, understand this is like a wound that has festered and festered and festered for decades. But we haven't talked about. I mean, we could you know we could do a whole segment on drug free zones and whether they work or not. Right. And you know because in Florida, you know, if you got caught, even if you're in your car with a certain amount of drugs and you're driving by a church or a nursing home, or a school, or a community center, or a, you know one of these other places. Well, I mean, if you do a Venn diagram of Tampa, where we are right now, and try to figure out what zones aren't drug-free, Maybe. There's none. I mean, yeah. you got to. I mean, you, you, maybe at the 18th, maybe at the 18th green at Mar-a-Lago, right, would be the <laughs> the non-drug-free zone in the entire state of Florida. But if you come into urbanized areas like this, the whole place is a drug-free zone. So, what policy is the drug-free zone actually getting us? None, because there there's no zone that's not drug-free. Well, they say, oh, we the crime should be harder. Well, of course, but if the policy goal here is to keep drugs out of certain zones and everything is a zone, then are we actually accomplishing the policy goal? But it's these kind of questions that frankly just aren't being asked. Right, right, right. Um, let's go to our next caller. Okay. Caller, you're on the Sunday Forum. Hello? Hello? Okay. Uh, next caller, you're on oh, the Sunday Forum. Hello? Hello? Yes, can yeah. you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Sure. I wanted to ask your your your, your senator here that he's bringing out some things that are very very interesting in here. Uh, one is: Do you expect any reform to take place, particularly when you have legislative turnover? In other words, when you have term limits. I mean, uh, when you when you have uh, what you call legislative instability, in the sense that when you have term limits, you have people who are running every six years or so after six years you're out and so it depends upon the other person to uh to to who comes in if they're if that's their concern to then uh raise these issues and then you have something else that's happening here where you have legislatures that come in and they design certain policies uh for example within the prison system uh, and which, when they do leave their term, they get a chance to open up companies and, and benefit from the very legislation that they pass and profit from it. And we see this particularly in the food service and stuff. And you hear, uh, uh, not rumors, the facts that the governor's family or someone with who was previously the legislator is uh, uh, profiting from these, these so-called uh, laws that they, they practice. Then there's one other thing that that we came across this week. This week There was a very interesting uh, uh, show uh, documentary on NOVA called uh, Computers Versus Crime and that the data analytics that are being used are so seriously flawed. I'm talking about uh, how judges and, uh, and probation is being uh, misinterpreted or data is being put in there in terms of these algorithms that put that that are so biased that uh, it found that one person who may be white who had been as one guy who had done five years uh, in prison had a uh, lower score than a black woman who had had no time at all and had her first encounter. I believe is a uh, was sentenced some like ten years for a, 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 a crime because of the the flawed algorithms that took place. And this again was declared uh, October the twelfth uh, on Nova. It's called Computers versus Crime. And so you know. We'll go directly to your question because we we got a lot of yeah, calls. Yeah, look, you know, I think to your question, your question yeah, about. I, Predictive policing. There, there's a lot of there's a lot going on in that space. I mean, remember the movie Minority Report, where you know we had pre-crime and we were trying to determine who was going to commit the crime before they actually committed right. it, right? Right. Uh, and and so there's a lot of this discussion about pre-crime and 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 uh, you know there's been a lot of a lot of uh, concern about that. I mean, if you look at what That's happened up in Pasco me. County uh, with uh, with the sheriff up there, where they've been sued a number of times for some of their intelligent crime. Uh, uh, and 
enforcement mechanisms and methods uh, that they've that they've said they've pulled back on. Uh, but I think there's 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 going to be a push for some of that in the state. Uh, there still is to push to intelligent policing and stuff like that. Um, and you know, and I think clearly you want to put resources where you're going to have the most problems, right? I think there's there's a there's a real balance that has to be found there. Um, but I, I think you know to your point. The, the Florida legislature really has to, um, legislators have to go out and see this. Um, you know, I'm a product of term limits. Like I wouldn't have been in the legislature had there not been term limits. So I, I'm a fan of them because I think you gotta, you want that new blood. You want that new, that, that new thought. None of us should be career politicians. Uh, but I think what's important is that people come in and they bring their new ideas, but it's really about finding that new passion. And we've got to find a way to get legislators passionate about this topic so that we can get real reform going. Absolutely, absolutely. Hey, everybody take a deep breath. Everybody take a deep breath. Sin, you ready? I'm ready. All right, we're going to go off and do some De La Soul for a second, guys. All right, so uh, it is now 40 minutes, 40 minutes after the hour of 9 a.m. We're going to do some De La Soul, roller skating jam named Saturday, Saturday, right here on the Sunday Forum. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Listening to WMNF Tampa Music and News. Like a vibe from the wheel to the foot. 
Zip on by, zippity doodle, let's zip on by. Feed on the weed and we're feeling high. Sun is on thick and the cheese are both thick. Come on, it's no time to hide. Season is twist, spinning and winning. No hack and sack, let let me in. Spill on the bottom away, but it's okay. It's a Saturday. Now let's all get baked like a needle. Watch Mr. Lawn, don't look at the Peter. Feel on the farm, I'll feel on the. Hey, watch that. It's a Saturday. Now is the And you're listening to WMNF Tampa. All right, all right, all right. This is Sounds of De La Soul, a roller skating jam named Saturdays, right here on Sunday, on the Sunday Forum, right here on WMNF 88.5 Tampa, Sarasota, St. Pete. Woo! Our guest today is Senator Jeff Brandis. Senator, how are you feeling? Doing great, thanks. All right, all right, all right. You like this Saturday? Even though it's Sunday It threw me off I'm not going to joke It's all good It's all good Hey listen We're glad to have you here with us To discuss this issue of prison reform And there's so many nuances to this thing uh, If you want to call them nuances I mean there's so much to discuss Yeah I mean I always tell people Dealing with criminal justice reform Is being like uh, it's, It's like being a firefighter And you show up to a building And you're by yourself And and you get And every room is on fire And you got to figure out Where to start So the answer I've come up with Is you don't start with a hose You start with a radio Because you can't do it all yourself Wow Right. I mean, at the end of the day, you got to have a team to support you and a team that's thinking about these things and a, and, a, and a group of people that come together on a policy front that try to educate legislators, take them around, tour them, show them what's going on, but bring them the best practices in the country. And so that's what, what I'm planning to work on after I leave the legislature is, is really creating a, a policy group that focuses on criminal justice reform, property insurance, which is a disaster in Florida as well, uh, transportation and housing affordability, which are really th- some of the most important issues of the state that I frankly just believe that there isn't the right vision for or the right policy guidance going to the legisl- my legislative colleagues to help address. So, and, and definitely criminal justice and prison reform are, are right there. They're at the top of areas that just need so much work. Uh, that you, you got to get on the radio because you're never going to do it by just grabbing the hose and aiming for a window. Absolutely, absolutely. Listen, I'm hoping, I'm hoping the Queen Mother calls you. Uh, Connie well, we Burton. do, we do have a few emails for him. Okay, so, all right. Uh, you want me to read them? Let's 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 read the emails and we'll go okay. back to the lines. All right. Hello, wondering whether the senator sees himself as taking a look at other issues affecting poor and marginalized people. Other Republicans have taken positions over prison reform. It doesn't seem to go very far. The reason we have the prison industrial complex is due to targeting mostly black and brown people and the undue sentences they receive. It's taking money for those who invest in it. This deep dive is not popular with the Republicans, generally speaking. Not saying the Democrats 
are able to make much of a mark as that too are tied to corporate interests. People are not served as long as profits is the motive. Well, I think that there's a misconception out there that a lot of Florida's prisons are privatized, and it's just simply not true. We only have a handful of prisons that are private prisons, and frankly, if you and I had to go to prison, we would beg to go to private prisons because all the private prisons are air-conditioned. They probably have better health care, better food, um, and, uh, and, and obviously more probably consistent corrections facilities uh, that are there, and some of the nicest ones in the state are the private ones. Uh, what you don't want to go to is the older public ones that are miserable, hot, and, and have been around since, you know, the days of Governor Rubin Askew in the 1960s and 70s was when they were built, and they frankly haven't changed. Um, so, the, you know, the, the, the key is how do we, what, you know, I think the legislature has to figure out what outcomes it wants. What's its vision for what it wants to accomplish? And then ask, start asking tough questions like, are the things we're doing helping us accomplish that vision? Because right now, I couldn't tell you what their vision is. I mean, I've been in the legislature for 12 years, so I couldn't tell you what their vision for the prison system is. Um, you know, right now, it is largely led by the Sheriff's Association, which is lock them up longer, increase the mandatory minimum sentences. Let's, let's you know, uh, you know there, there just isn't a group out there that's pushing and acting as a counterpoint to some of these other discussions that are going on out there. Do you think there's, there's a support then for, on their part, for the to speak to that particular issue with regard to um, black citizens being locked up disproportionately, being placed in those in those um, prison industrial complexes, where um, where you know they're put to work. I mean, it, it, you know, there's this, there's the um, well, the, I mean, bottom line is disproportionate. There are disproportionate numbers. That's undoubtedly the case. But then we look at at um, at the support for that type of behavior, that type of dynamic. Do you see that on their part? Do I, do I see the support for... for from, from the sheriff's um, um, uh, organization? You well, I mean, I think they, they have to define what kind of outcomes they want too, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think that's where we have to work with them. We, we, you can't be always opposed to what everything, everything they're working through. You, you've got to find a way to work with them and have a common goal. Uh, it's a lot well, better if we're the, all working together. Well, the question I'm asking is perhaps more nefarious than that. Right. Right. And I'm looking at it from the standpoint of what we, of, of, as we take the deeper dive, we can't take that deeper dive without looking at the darker side of this thing. Absolutely. Right? And, and, you know, for, you know, we see it as, okay, there is a support for that type of bad behavior of that, but that that type of nefarious uh, support for um, imprisoning more of us people who look like me and people on the show, um, and putting us in 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 these in these systems uh, into the prison system. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I think I think the data supports that people of color and African Americans and and others have a have a disproportionately higher sentencing than other individuals. Right, right. And I think that's partially because of, of, you know, public defenders and judges and the state attorneys themselves. Um, but honestly, I think it's, it's the overall system that is really designed and, and as it's designed, end up working against people. Um, and it's not just, I mean, it, we're, we're, again, we're, we, we have a system that frankly is based on plea deals. And so, the, really, the prosecutor gets to set the plea deal, you know, wh whether he's willing to offer an, an individual stuff. And I think, you know, it's, it's not hard to just go back and look at the data. We can just look at the data. I mean, there was a lot of data that just came out of Hillsborough County about some of this, uh, some of the disproportionate sentences that were getting handed out here. And I think once we start calling that out, then I think it starts putting people on the record and putting people and holding people accountable for the types of sentences that are being offered. And you can take two specific individuals, very similar pa fact patterns, very similar circumstances, and you can see wh what type of deals are getting offered. And part of it is just, you know, sometimes a prosecutor overreaches, um, but sometimes it's just a public defender who just wants to get the case off their docket and is telling people to plea it out because they don't want to take it to trial because they got an another 150 cases on their, that they're working mm -hmm. and they don't have time to focus on this one. But I think that's a good overall part of the problem. Right. If you what you see going on in, in the state of Florida right now is, you know, these state attorneys, they're ju very, very junior. 
right? Like mm-hmm. they're, they're not making enough money. They, they right. aren't making a good living either. And right. so you're getting very junior state attorneys. And if that's happened at the state attorney level, it's definitely happened to the state, at the public defender level. And so what you have is inexperienced public defenders, inexperienced state attorneys working on these very sometimes complicated cases, dealing with people's individual yeah. liberty and lives. Get off the desk. And they just try to move it through. Right, right. Let's... Uh, we let's, we got yeah, time for one more question. They had to go directly to the, to okay. the question. Caller, you're on the Sunday Forum. Good morning, Mr. Miko. Good uh, morning. Good morning, Walter. Hey, Jay, what's going on, man? Uh, all right. Uh, I'll go s- straight to what I have to say, and I'll get off the air. <clears throat> First, number one, uh, good morning, Senator. Morning. Um, are you there? I'm here. Yeah, good, good morning. I want to tell you thanks for your service to uh, our nation and to us in the service but number two uh walter knows this i'm gonna tell you straight up i don't like your party i don't like it i don't like it because of what it's doing nationally and the lies that they're embracing and stuff so it's like i kind of take what you say with a grain of salt sorry uh number three um with prisons are you telling me that rayford state prison state prison they don't make a profit off of, of, of warehousing people, and I will say this, some people do deserve to be there. They do deserve to be there because of their actions. No doubt. But but the story that you told about the grandmother, she doesn't deserve to be there, and I think judges should have discretion to against mandatory minimums, maybe community service work or some, something else. See, I don't see her as if you let her go, she's going to turn into, like, have you ever seen the movie New Jack City? She's going to turn into the next Nino Brown, <laughs> and she's going to start a cabal and selling uh, Oxycontin. No. Something should be done with her. Right. Uh, that's all I have to say, and you guys have a wonderful morning. Goodbye. You too. <laughs> well, I appreciate the question. Listen, there's, there's plenty of times I don't like either party. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I, that's my, I was always, a, I was always a libertarian, uh, a leaning legislator, uh, and I had to kind of choose a side, but there are plenty of times that I've been kind of, uh, accused of all kinds of things. So look at the end of the day, I think, um, you know, I'm excited that we're having a conversation about this. I hope this is not the end of the conversation, but the beginning of a conversation. Right. And we can cover a lot of ground talking about criminal justice and prison reform. We could talk about sentencing reform. We could talk about reentry reform. I mean, all of these different areas. And this is, again, why I feel like uh, I'm a firefighter showing up to a building where every room is on fire and I got to figure out where to start. And where I'm starting is on this radio, asking for people to get involved to help to come reach out to their legislators, to ask them to simply go visit a prison. Just say, whatever you do, listen, I'm going to vote for somebody, but I'm going to vote for somebody who's going to go visit a prison. And if, if legislators would just make that part of their, 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 their summers, get out there and see what these facilities are like. Go to the women's prison, go to the men's prison, go to the juvenile facilities and see what people are dealing with. Talk to the corrections officers, talk to the staff, talk to the inmates, and, and figure out what their lives are like. You're going to come away with being deeply moved yeah. and in a wealth of knowledge, absolutely, about about how the system works or how it doesn't work. And I will tell you, for the most part, it isn't working. We aren't getting the outcomes what we want. We've got to start by defining those outcomes, and then we've got to get people to go out and see the facilities and get engaged and get energized like I got energized uh, and, and try to begin to talk about reforming the system. It's never going to happen in one year. It's going to take decades to get this reformed, Um, but it's going to start with a passion. Uh, And I think there are plenty of people out there with the passion who have families and loved ones that are engaged in the prison system and those that have come out from incarceration that that, that know the changes that need to be made. And those are important voices in this conversation. Absolutely. Uh, Listen, let me tell you, um, I had a discussion earlier this week, and and I hope that we'll be able to get her onto the show, get them onto the show. Um, one of the one of the top advocates regarding this issue in the legislature um, is uh, Diane Hart. State Representative mm-hmm. Diane Hart has been a real stalwart regard to this whole thing. Um, worked hard, been very diligent, and has made a lot of uh, headway, especially with understanding uh, and publicizing information uh, and making an engagement that is significant between community people and their loved ones or 
uh, making certain that people understand as much as they possibly can what we were just discussing regarding prison reform and all those different nuances. Um, so I want to open up that opportunity for um, Representative Hart to come on to the show uh, next time so that we can discuss this thing with her as well as what the lady who we call the Queen Mother, um, uh, Connie Burton, uh, to come on to the show as well. Uh, I don't think that she's on the line this morning, um, yeah, as we saw. I don't know, because I, I didn't put anybody's name, but uh, okay. I mean, we could, there, do you want to take another call? Or? Well, no no time for it. Yeah. Unfortunately, okay. we, we're down to like literally one minute before we have to, before we have to let it go. So listen, um, I we're going to go out to Everybody Loves the Sunshine with uh, uh, by Brother Roy Ayers, and, uh, because we got to have some sunshine, folks. Right. We gotta have some sunshine. There's gotta be light in this tunnel, right? Walker, there have to be solutions that that we that we are able to implement. And if we did not get to you this week, we will get to you next week. Please write us an email um, so that we can address those issues. But please, please, please communicate either by the Facebook page if you're watching. Please do, um, and and we can listen to you. We can hear you. Uh, and next week, again, we will bring up this same subject and expand on it even more. We want to thank Senator Jeff Brandis for being here. We really appreciate you, brother. Thanks thank for, you so thanks much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate all right, it. All right. I shook a Republican's hand, y'all. <laughs> I'm just joking around. I'm just joking around. Hey, listen, thank you so much for being here with us. I really appreciate it. Uh, and as